like to share with us this evening from Paul's letter to Corinth, the first of those two, 15th chapter beginning at verse 12. Hear these words. Now, let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ. Sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Would you pray with me? All right, God. Sometimes we are a sorry lot, but we seek the promise of resurrection. We seek the promise and the power of your grace. And so, God, I pray that you would, in these moments, speak through me, and if need be, in spite of me, so that your word alone would be heard. Amen. So, Lucy is four years old. And she and her family are a part of Trinity, and both she and her family gave me permission to share this story. It's really a beautiful story, but just this past Sunday, I was standing in the back of the worship center following that really incredible celebration of our servant volunteers, and many of you were part of that and were there for that. And as you know, we sort of stuck around after to celebrate and to share in a meal and, and some fellowship. And... Lucy was one of those kids who was kind of running around up front, and it was, it was just nice. I just, I've always liked that, you know? They feel comfortable here. But then, then she got up, and she stood in front of the altar, and I, I was just, I wonder what's happening over there? And then she does one of these, and I just, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, what is, isn't that beautiful? And a moment later, her mom comes up to me, and she's, I mean, it looks like she's crying, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what did she say? And she says, she stood up there and she said, boring stuff. (laughs) 
Her mom wasn't crying, she was laughing hysterically and just had to tell me what her daughter, how she emulated, yeah. Now, I, in that moment, I immediately pulled out my notebook and I wrote it down. And the best part of that story, at least for me, aside, I mean, the boring stuff is the best part of the story. But Lucy later asked me, she's like, what's that? And I was like, this is my notebook and look what I last wrote in it was this story about you. And Lucy said, you can use it. So, and then but she, also her dad was holding her and he said I could too. But listen, here's the deal. The truth is that that is all too accurate sometimes. And I'm not, obviously, I'm not trying to say that, oh, we at Trinity. No, I'm saying just generally, when we get involved in sort of trying to think about worship, about God, about theology, about what that means for us, we can, we can get a little boring. We, we, can, we can find ourselves overly worried or concerned about, are we going down the right, is this the right thing to say and do? But the truth is, is that I don't think even the, the idea of being boring, it just doesn't feel very scriptural to me. Here's, here's what I'm suggesting. First of all, let's think for a moment about the ways that Jesus taught. First of all, I love that Jesus uses humor a lot. And, and, and I know that he's not like out there and like, all right, okay, so here's the deal. Ready? Okay, so a rabbi goes into a bar. I mean, he's not like using humor like that, although wouldn't that be great? But, and I think maybe he probably did, just didn't make it in the Gospels, but that's, that's another time. But listen, here's the thing. Matthew 7, for example, Jesus says, why do you worry about the, the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Why are you trying to help your neighbor get the, the, the sawdust out of their eye when you've got a log sticking out of your I mean, think about it for a second. First of all, that is absolutely ridiculous. Second of all, how are you going to help someone with something like that when you, your sight is obstructed? I mean, I think that's funny. He also, Jesus loved to shock people. In Luke 4, as he gives his first sermon in Nazareth, his sermon is so shocking the town tries to kill him. And two chapters later, Luke 6, which I'm preaching on on Sunday, pray for me all. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are hungry. Blessed are those who weep and are hated. And Paul uses something else here. He's really kind of shocking with this passage, I think. And I want to be clear before we even get into Paul. I'm not trying to say that these are are good sort of uh, oratorial tricks or or strategies for theatrical effect to draw on the crowd. I'm not saying that. My point is, is that when we are willing to speak truth and to speak it boldly, then if we get anywhere near boring, (laughs) I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing. Again, as I've said, Paul, Paul liked to, to shake things up too, liked to be shocking. In fact, do you remember the first words of our passage? He says, now let me ask you something profound yet troubling. I mean, that's a great opening, right? These things that, that they want to, to speak to us, Paul and Jesus and, and so many people throughout Scripture, and these things that I would like to share with you and these things that we get to share with each other, it's exciting. And I'll tell you one other thing that is decidedly not boring, and that is sort of the subject that Paul is diving into here, which at some level is, is, is just life and death. 
And, and I mean that seriously. That's something that we, that we just love. Like it is, it is something that we're borderline obsessed with in our culture. The limits of our mortality, the way that they are explored through our art and our entertainment. I mean, at some level, the great equalizer of death and, and what's next is something that, that plays into so very many things. I mean, on the one sense, you've got zombies and vampires, right? The, uh, albeit in varying degrees, these are characters, creatures that have subverted the grave. So many fantasy and sci-fi stories, they're just hanging on or, or, or working towards this quest for extended or maybe even everlasting life. The wrestling with death is ever-present, and it's ever-present for each of us, all of us. As you, as you might recall, Paul in 1 Corinthians has been addressing this disunity within that community, within that congregation, that church. And particularly here, part of what he's addressing is this, this teaching that has been happening within the Corinth community that, that there is, as he puts it, no such thing as a resurrection. And he begins this sort of argument. Well, if this is true, then this is true. And if this isn't true, then this can't be true. And i got to tell you, I could preach that sermon, right? Like, I think I could get going, and, and it, we could get into all of these um, doctrinal assertions about resurrection, and then the sort of systematic theological progressions that I would build from sort of a core sets of, of, of axioms and principles, and I would kind of, I think what I would do is I would kind of like lay out this beautiful equation that just proves resurrection. I think I'd use a whiteboard. It would be amazing. I also think it would be a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, and I also have this deep fear that the only thing you would remember from tonight is boring stuff, and it would be more of a description of the sermon than I want it to be. So, that's not what we're going to think about. And really, the truth is that is also true, but the, but the truth is what really grabs me here is that Paul's argument is not just some systematic equation-like idea Paul is insisting that resurrection is so foundational, that resurrection lives into every aspect of our lives and our death, that resurrection is precisely what saves us. To put it another way, when we talk about the hope of Jesus Christ, we are talking about the hope of resurrection, resurrection which touches the living. Paul says we are not wandering in the dark because Jesus came and died and overcame death. It touches the dead who will be raised, as Peterson translates it in the message which we read tonight, that we are going to leave the cemetery. It speaks to our preoccupation with mortality, whether it is in our art or entertainment, or whether it's in our daily lives. And it does so in ways that change everything. The hope of Jesus Christ is the hope of resurrection. It's the good news. It's the good news that God has defeated evil, and that, and that God did so by defeating the greatest tool of evil. The one thing that none of us try as we might overcome, <laughs> death. 
And because death has been defeated, because the tomb was empty, because this is how God chose to overcome evil in the world and how God continues to overcome evil in the world, and because we receive through God's grace the promise of our own resurrection, then my, my, my friends... The hope of Jesus Christ is the hope of resurrection. And the power of resurrection, the very power of it, is the authority of grace. Or to put it another way, it means God wins. It means grace wins every time. It means resurrection is already at work in us, in death and in life, and in our daily struggles with suffering or evil. Resurrection is the power of God that works in the brokenness of our own lives. It is the promise that God can heal a struggling marriage. It's the grace that that overwhelms the shame of the addict. It's the intimate and knowing love present with those who are suffering loss. Resurrection is power over mortal death, but it is also more than power over mortal death. It's an embodied hope that proves God's love and God's power for us here and now. So yes, thank you, Paul. We will work at believing properly in resurrection, but I want to say more than that, we will seek to believe in resurrection. Invite it in. Trust in the power and the work that has already overcome and continues to overcome the enemy that we cannot. And with that resurrection hope, may we truly live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.